All right, James chapter 4. It's where we are. James chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. We're going to continue on where we were two weeks ago uh, before Easter. <clears throat> and James says, Submit yourselves into God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Father God, first of all, I just would ask, Lord, that you would touch my uh, vocal cords and throat this morning. And, and Father, secondly, we would just come before you today and we would just ask, Lord, that you would take your holy, inspired, infallible word of God and speak life and hope and faith and love into us this morning through it. Speak wisdom into our lives through it. And we just ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I um, had the privilege this week of um, reading an article by Dr. Timothy Tennant, who is um, the president of Asbury Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky, and he wrote a tribute uh, to Dr. Billy Graham um, recently that really warmed my heart and uh, thrilled me a great bit. <clears throat> and he shared three stories. I'm going to share two of them with you this morning. In one of Billy Graham's very first crusades, he held his very first one in 1947, but his first big crusade happened in Los Angeles in uh, <clears throat> 1949 out in uh, California, and it was scheduled for three weeks. And they had a big tent. Uh, you see the picture of it there on the screen. And it was scheduled for three weeks, but they started it, and they kept having crowds right to the end, and it went on for eight weeks. And he spoke uh, to over 350,000 different people, um, and revival broke out. And uh, the critics all said at the time, well, it's California, anything could happen out there. <laughs> and so the challenge to Billy Graham was, is um, if he was truly anointed by God, he needed to prove it in some normal place. Um, and for whatever reason, that was Boston. Um, I don't know why. But anyway, he needed to prove it in a hard, cold place like Boston, Massachusetts. And so he went to Boston, and he preached in the open air, uh, Boston Commons, during the cold of January in 1950. Actually started New Year's Eve in 1949 and went for several weeks there. And it was a real test of faith because it was outside in Boston in January, and they had over 50,000 people come hear the gospel um, in Boston. 
that crusade was before uh, Billy Graham was real organized. And he, I mean, he, I, I watched him put together a, a crusade down in Oklahoma City that I attended when I was at Bartlesville. And um, it, absolute in, incredible organization that Billy Graham had along with his crusades. I mean, they had everything just down to a T for those crusades. But this was in the very early days, and they weren't real organized yet, and they just had this big revival in Boston, and uh, people came out, and there wasn't a center aisle for people to come down. There was no big area that was roped off for the people that came down to receive Christ and all of that kind of stuff. And so Billy Graham gets to the end of his message, and there's no center aisle. There's no place for people to come to. And so he simply at that moment has inspiration of God. And he says, he tells the people who are receiving Christ to simply take their handkerchiefs. Now, if I asked you to do that, not many of you would have one. But in that day, everyone wore suits and everyone had a handkerchief. And so he says, simply ask the people to take a handkerchief and wave it in the air. And thousands of people uh, wave their handkerchief as a sign of surrendering to God. Um, and, and so that was, that was one of those uh, miracle stories in, in the life of Billy Graham where he, he leaves California and goes to a hard-hearted place like Boston and, and uh, has that experience. And it was because Billy Graham really submitted his life to Christ. And he submitted to God and he took a big step of faith, being willing to go to Boston and preach in the cold air in the middle of January. The second story I want to share with you that uh, Dr. Tennant shares is Billy Graham, and I remember this, and I remember it being in the news, and, he, and Billy Graham got a lot of criticism for it. But it was in, in 1982, Billy Graham took a trip to the Soviet Union, and he spoke at a peace conference over there, and spoke at a couple other things, and then came back home. But while he was over there, he made arrangements to go back. And so in 1984, um, he returned to uh, the Soviet Union, where he preached in a dozen, dozens of churches over there, but then ended his, his time over in Russia by preaching in the Red Square. Now, today, it's kind of hard. I know there's a lot of new... Um, controversy about Russia today in the news, but it's hard for us to even imagine, you know, without remembering back to 1984, just how controversial that was at the end of the Cold War and, and some of those kind of things. So the media was just full of, of accusations against Billy Graham at that point that he was being used by the Russians and uh, he was being co-opted for their propaganda and that he was being used to tell the world that there was religious freedom in all these countries over there and all of that. Well, Dr. Tennant happened to be a student at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston at the time. And when he came back from the Soviet Union, his first place that Billy Graham came to was Gordon-Conwell Seminary to speak and to hold a service there. And so the media was everywhere. When he got off the plane, they were all swarming around Billy Graham and, and they were, you know, still all riled up about the fact that he'd ever gone to Russia and all of that. And, and they were, you know, they wanted to ask him specifically about how he felt about being used by the Soviets uh, as part of their propaganda. 
And Billy Graham just simply said this. I don't care about Soviet propaganda. All I know is that I preach the same gospel in the Red Square that I have preached all over the world. And that's good enough for me. <laughs> There's another, that's another picture of a man who was fully submitted to God amidst all the criticism. He kept his eyes on God and he kept sharing the gospel wherever he was welcome to go. And he didn't worry about what the media was saying or what anyone else was doing. He just kept his eyes on God and submitted himself to God. Well, as we look at this text, James is talking to us and he's telling us to submit ourselves. And, and he's tying this back. If you remember two weeks ago, James ends on this note of talking about humility. And we're going to get back to that subject again today. But James jumps from talking about humility in verse 6 to instructing us to submit to God. And I simply want to make this point. Self-reliant people, proud people, arrogant people will never submit themselves to God. If we are not humble, we will not submit ourselves to God. Um, a good soldier in the army submits himself or herself to the captain. Um, and yet, if you and I get caught up in this thing of arrogance and pride and all of that, pretty soon we've made ourselves our God. And so we're not going to submit to God. And, and so he goes, James talks, goes from talking about humility to talking about submission to God. And so he ties those two things together and he reminds us that if we are ever going to really get to the place where we submit ourselves to God, we've got to humble ourselves. But the other thing he does, and he doesn't camp there, he doesn't spend much time talking about submitting to God, but he jumps right into this next phrase, resist the devil. And why is that? That is because you cannot submit to God and not at the same time resist the devil and his work in your life. God and Satan are at cross purposes with each other. And so if you're not resisting the devil, you are not submitting to God. Uh, you know, you just can't do that. You have to do both of them at the same time. You have to submit to God and resist the devil. Now, the devil, the scriptures tell us uh, in numerous places that he is sly. He is cunning. He deceives us. He tricks us. He does all kinds of things uh, to get us to fall into a trap. And so it's not just a matter that you and I can just casually go through our lives um, without intentionally resisting the devil. We have to actively do that. And, and that's what James is talking about here. He says, submit to God. That, that's not natural to us. Neither is resisting. Always living our lives resisting. And yet James says those two things are very important for us to do. We have to actively submit to God, and we have to actively, intentionally resist the devil. 
And the reason we have to actively do that is because the devil is sly. All of a sudden, we'll just fall into old, sinful, carnal habits if we're not intentionally resisting Satan and what he wants to do in our life. So, how do we resist the devil? We remain humble. We submit to God. And thirdly, we don't argue with Satan. Um, We don't try to argue with him. We don't try to reason with him. That's exactly what Eve did in the Garden of Eden. Satan came along and said, man, look at this fruit. Isn't that wonderful? And Eve got in a conversation with Satan. That's not something you and I are supposed to do. We are not to get in conversations with Satan. We are to resist Satan, not converse with Satan, but simply resist. Um, So that means we are to stand bravely against Satan. We are to do what Jesus did when, when, when Satan tempted Jesus. Jesus didn't get in a discussion. Jesus simply quoted scripture and spoke um, scripture back. And at the end of that, what does it tell us in Matthew chapter 4? At the end of that, Satan fleed. And angels came and attended to Jesus. And it's interesting that in this passage, um, that same promise is true is promised here. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That is one of the great promises of Scripture. That if you and I, when we are being barraged with temptations and all of that, if we will resist, Satan will flee. Our problem today in the church is that we don't actually get to that place of resisting Satan so Satan doesn't flee. We need to actively resist the work of Satan in our life. That means that we don't toy with temptation. Um, We don't see how close to sin we can get um, and still be okay. Chuck Kraft writes this quote. He says, garbage attracts rats. If you remove the garbage, the rats will go away. And he said, that's how you resist the devil. And then Craig Rochelle, um, this quote that Gary referenced this morning that I've shared uh, a month or so ago, temptation is anything that promises satisfaction at the cost of obedience to God. So we have to resist. We have to decide, no, this is not something that is God's best will for my life. And then, so submit to God, he says, resist the devil. And then the third thing um, that he says to us is draw near to God. Draw near to him. So we are to keep our focus on God. We are to resist the devil Uh, If we keep our focus on God, resisting the devil becomes natural. But here is the second promise. If we resist the devil, the devil will flee. If we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. Another promise for us. If we will draw near to God, God will draw near to us. So, um, you go to this passage in Second Chronicles chapter 15, 1-2, and I just wanted you to see this verse. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, son of Obed. He went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. 
If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. I love those words. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. I remember Abraham Lincoln one time. Um, one of the stories about, about him is, is he was asked to pray um, that God would be with us in one of our military campaigns um, in the Civil War. And Abraham Lincoln simply responded to the general and said, it's not a matter, it's not so important that God be on our side. What is important is that we are on his side. <laughs> and that's exactly, that flows right out of Second Chronicles chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. Now, I want to say this, that there are some times in your life and in my life when we will draw near to God and God will draw near to us, but you and I may not be aware of it. There are what St. John of the Cross described as the dark night of the soul experiences that many of you have experienced. Times when our emotions and our experiences, um, people that are going through deep grieving process, all kinds of other issues that come into life, there are times when because of our soul and the things that we're going through in life, um, our receptors aren't there. I, I, I can be listening to the radio and um, I, I get close to my garage and I start to pull it in the garage and I lose it because of the steel roof. Um, I don't get that reception anymore. And sometimes when you and I are going through really rough spots in our life, God may be right there. He may be drawing near to us, but I can't experience. I, I'm, you know, my, my receptors are blocked. And so I can't receive it. Um, and all of that. So... You and I need to keep that in mind that sometimes we have to take that by faith. That when we draw near to God, God will draw near to us, but you and I don't always experience I remember one time when I was in, in college and I was listening to one of my favorite professors, Dr. Larry Hughes, um, and, and he was just sharing, we were in a Bible class, and, and I don't remember what text he was sharing, uh, scriptures we were studying and all of that, but I remember he just stopped and he talked about when his son uh, drowned. Um, and he, he, he talked to us, and it was one of the most moving classes I had my whole time at, at Bartlesville. But he talked about the fact that he was a pastor at the time, and he said he pastored for at least two years without any sensation of God after he lost his son. He said he was so broken and so grieved. He said, I couldn't feel God. He said, I prayed, but it was, I didn't feel anything. I didn't receive anything. I'd read the scripture. I'd study for sermons. He said, I, I did all the work of pastoral ministry, but for two years, I did not feel God one single time. He said, it was just a matter of faith. I just kept hanging in there until God finally broke through and the sunshine came back in my life and all of that. But he said it was a long process in my life. And I just want to say to you, when you go through those periods in your life, those dark nights of the soul, don't give up on God. He hasn't given up on you. Your receptors are just shot. 
And over time, God will heal those again. And he will bring you back to the point where you can feel that God is drawing near to you. And I'm way off subject, so I'll try to get back on here. Now, I want to say you cannot draw near to God if you are not resisting Satan. (laughs) You can't draw near to God if you're not resisting Satan. Sin is the work of Satan. And so we have to, the next thing he tells us is that we have to come near to God and we have to wash our hands and purify our hearts. And and there's a couple of things there that I want you to notice in that. First, um, God wants our partnership. Now we know from Isaiah, we know from the scripture, that really God is the only one that can cleanse us. And that God is the only one that can purify us that you and I don't have that ability, and yet, and yet, God says, through James here, he says, wash your hands, purify your hearts. God wants us to work with him in that process. Um, So it's not just something that we just come and we instantaneously expect God to do some kind of miracle all by himself without our cooperation. It's always God working in our life with our cooperation. And you see that here in this passage. Second, I want you to notice that there are two different groups of people that need cleansing. There are sinners. Wash your hands, sinners. Now, um, I don't know literature, so forgive me. If I'm messing this all up, you literature people. Um, Is it Macbeth, where the lady has the the hands that she has to wash and all of that because she's committed uh, murder? Um, None of you know either. Okay, that's good. (laughs) But anyway, you know, she kept washing her hands because of the guilt from her sin. And she couldn't wash them enough. She was always washing her hands. And James says to us, we wash our hands. The the symbol of that is our hands are the objects by which we commit a lot of sin. And so James is saying there, wash your hands of your actions of sin. And then he says, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So he's talking about two different groups of people. He's talking about sinners in terms of the actions that we commit, but he's also talking about a double-minded heart or a mind that never really is fully and wholeheartedly committed to God. And he said those two things both have to happen. We have to cleanse our acts of sin and we have to purify this unwavering, you know, sitting on both sides of the fence. We can't be on both sides of the fence. We have to choose one side of the fence. And so he says that. And then the third thing he says is that notice that that is done through repentance. A turning from the wrong to doing, to obeying God wholeheartedly. He says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Now, our culture, the culture that you and I live in, is very comfortable just kind of making light laughter, light-hearted laughter at our sin. 
Whenever we mess up, we just kind of lightheartedly laugh at it and we move on. That doesn't help us truly move on. Now, I I do want to say this. There are some Christians, especially in the holiness movement of which we're a part of, who can spend so much time um, wallowing in their sin that they never really get get victory over it because they would rather... Um, wallow because uh, and complain about oh I sinned here and and for the next years and years and years they don't move forward spiritually because they're still focused on the sin of long time ago so we don't want to just go on forever with that God wants to us to may, uh, grieve mourn and wail he wants us to do that so that he can get us past that and he can make us effective Christians in the world But on the other hand, God does call us to have outward grieving and inward sorrow at our sin. Jesus says in the the, um, Beatitudes, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And then there's a passage from Isaiah 57. For this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite, willing to grieve, and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. A proud Christian will never mourn before God. That's why we have to humble ourselves before God. We are are not told to pray for humility in the scripture. We are simply told to be humble. Humble yourselves before God. It's a choice. It's something that we have to do. Um, It was not that many years ago that we used to have mourners' benches in churches and in revival services and all of those kind of things. Um, And I kind of think that sometimes it would be good medicine for us today. A lot more. Because we we don't see that kind of thing. And yet, you know... The sins that God has most clearly fixed in my life are the sins where I felt true grief and mourning for. If I never got to that place in my life, I never have allowed God to really deal with that sin in my life. And so I, I don't think we can ignore the scripture. I don't think we can ignore what James says. We are to grieve, mourn, and wail over our sin and let God come in and really do a thorough cleansing of us. And then he tells us, again, uh, to be humble. The reward of humility is that God will lift us up. How much better that you know God to lift us up than we to lift up ourselves? Someone has reminded us that for a tree to grow upwards, it must have roots deep in the soil. And if we are going to be exalted, we have to have deep roots in humility before God. Now, there's a couple of habits that James goes right into that I'm I'm going to take time to look at this morning in verses 11 and 12 that are contrary to true humility 
in us. Habits that are not humble that we have to resist. And he says those two habits that he specifically mentions here are slander and judging one another. Slander is to speak against, to speak evil of, or to defame another person. And, and typically, slander does not just talk about actions because uh, the, the, the Bible is very clear. Some people just say that you and I are never to judge, and that is not scriptural at all. You and I are to judge. We are to judge actions according to the scripture and according to truth. What we are not to do is judge in terms of the person and their intent and their motives and all of that. We are simply to judge action in terms of whether it is pleasing and scriptural and all of that. So when we slander, we attack not just the actions, but the person and their motives. And this is very common, not just in the world, but in the church. And it is also decidedly ungodly. It is not love. Love requires us to speak the truth, to judge in truth and in love, and to speak the truth in love. So that's the issue of slander. And then there's secondly this issue of judging. And and when... James is talking about judging here. He's talking about people that judge as though they themselves are God. And they almost hold themselves up to a higher standard than the scripture themselves. And they are always the people who get to make the final decision on what is right and what is wrong and all of that. And James is talking about people who apply laws to other people that they don't apply to themselves. John Calvin Um, who, again, as Wesleyans, we don't quote very often, but he said that people who think they are superior to others condemn the acts and the words of others they don't like. And they put their own moodiness in the place of the law of Scripture, believing that they have the correct, they have the right to correct and to censure people above the law of God. And, And so... We constantly have to bring ourselves back to the scripture uh, to make sure that we are not setting ourselves up as a higher authority than the scripture and as a higher authority than, than God and the word of God. And the issue here is that we turn ourselves into, instead of a Christian fellowship of believers and brothers and sisters, we turn ourselves into a fellowship of judges uh, judging one another And James here is really summarizing what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. He says, judge not that you be not judged. Now the problem with these two things is that slander and judging both represent a lack of humility and a lack of submission to God. And James wants to tell us that God is the only lawgiver and judge. We can't take his place. We will never be able to take his place. Um, We can judge, but we cannot execute judgment on people like God can. He's the only one that can can make that final uh, judgment and execute his judgments. So I want to say that, but I also want to say this word, and there's some things that as 
as a pastor in transition and leaving. Um, and one of the dangers of a long-term pastorate like you've had in me um, is that you take on, a church is, will take on the strengths of their pastor and they will take on the weaknesses of their pastor. One of the things that I, um, one of the weaknesses is, is in this very area and I want to talk to you a little bit about it this morning. This church, because of my weaknesses, has developed a little bit of a habit of not confronting and talking to each other in love. You would rather come, run, and, you know, dump things on me, and I'm supposed to deal with this person instead of you going directly and talking to them. Because you, you just want peace because I, as your pastor, I want peace. And so sometimes we just don't deal with things up front like we should because we just want peace. And there are some times when you, as God's people, need to talk to each other face-to-face and say, I don't like this. This is why. And as Christians, we ought to be able to sit down, talk to each other face-to-face, listen to each other, and help each other see each other's perspective instead of dumping everything on the pastor to kind of resolve, which I don't do effectively. So I just want to say that, that all goes back to this area of slander and judgment and all of that. We need to be more effective as a church, and you need to be more effective as a church in talking to each other directly about the things that bug you, working through them scripturally. That is incredibly, incredibly important if you want to be a healthy church. It's something I have to grow up in also. Now, James closes with these primary words to each one of us. Submit to God, resist the devil, humble yourself. And I want to take you back to Dr. Billy Graham. Just because... Dr. Billy Graham probably lived that as well as anyone I know. He submitted himself to God. He resisted the devil. And he humbled himself before God. And I just want to say to you today, it is radically important that every one of us make sure that we are actively doing those things, not just hoping it's happening, but we need to intentionally be submitting ourselves to God, resisting the devil, and thirdly, humbling ourselves before God. 